At 11.57 p.m. on March 12, 1928, the St. Francis Dam in Southern California failed. Within seven minutes, the reservoir that was behind that dam emptied of its 12.4 billion gallons of water. The wall of water rushed downstream in a massive path of destruction that ended up in the Pacific Ocean just south of Ventura, California. No one's really certain how many people died, but the guess is somewhere between 400 and 600 people perished when that wall of water rushed down its course. Of course, everybody wants to know what happened. Why did the St. Francis Dam fail? Construction on the dam had just been completed in 1926, so the dam had only been in service for a couple of years. Many theories were put forward, several committees were put together to investigate it, but one thing all of the investigative teams had in common was this, the dam didn't fail. The ground underneath it failed. So that was the problem. After the dam was completed, the reservoir was filled, and the engineer of the dam would inspect it on a very regular basis, and as with any dam, uh, when it's new, cracks and fissures appear in the concrete, leaks would begin to show themselves in the dam, and all of this is very normal. The fissures would be repaired, uh, the leaks would be rerouted, and they would be patched. It's all very normal for a new dam. For example, the Hoover Dam, you've heard of it? On any given day, the seepage at the Hoover Dam from the walls of the canyon around it as well as the structure itself is measured at 2,600 gallons of water per minute. So a leaky dam is a part of how dams are intended to operate. So with each new fissure and each new leak, they would measure the dam and they would measure the fissure and they would measure the water flow to make sure the structure was in fact sound. And after all of these inspections, day in and day out, they said, this is a good dam structure. You're welcome. <laughs> In fact, the chief engineer of the dam had showed up on March 12th, the day of the failure. Another leak had appeared. And so in the morning of March 12th, he spent an hours-long inspection. He inspected every crack, every fissure, every leak. And when he was done, he said, you know what, long-term, there's a couple of things we're going to need to correct, but this structure is sound. And he had no idea this giant 180-foot wall of concrete he was standing in front of that night while he was sleeping would be washed downstream. One of the investigative committees put it this way. The type of the dam and the size of the dam were, in fact, sufficient. The structure itself was extraordinarily stable. The concrete was strong, and there was no earthquake that night. The dam failed because the ground it was built on failed. So how could this happen? The ground had been inspected numerous times by many different engineers, and they had all established that this was a good site for the structure of the dam. Uh, but the fact is, regardless of what they estimated beforehand, we all know now at this time this was not a good place to build the St. Francis Dam. And as a result, a perfectly good dam 
washed away. So the reason everybody was surprised that the dam failed was that they were measuring all of the wrong things while it, after it had been built. What mattered most was the ground underneath the structure of the dam, and nobody was measuring that. They were measuring the concrete structure itself, and everything about that concrete structure was just fine. They weren't looking at the real problem, were they? To identify what's going on with something, it's really important to look at the right thing. Think about your relationship with God. When you think about your relationship with God, how do you decide if it's okay? My relationship with God is okay because fill in the blank. My relationship with God is okay because I used to do really bad things and I don't do those really bad things anymore. I still do bad things, just not really bad things. My relationship with God is okay because I go to church, because I read my Bible, because I give my money to my church or charities. My relationship with God is okay because I'm nicer to people in line at the grocery store than I used to be. Except the coupon people. You do not have to be, you're, you guys are the coupon people, but you can stand. You pick the one line with no people in it and then they just have this coupon. It's going to be here an hour. That's, I've insulted a number of you, I didn't mean to. Uh, my relationship with God is okay because I volunteer time in my church or in a community organization that is important to me. My relationship with God is okay because I educate my children however you think you ought to. I educate my children in public school, or I educate my children in Christian school, or I educate my children in homeschool. I know my relationship with God is okay because I follow my convictions in how my children are educated. I know my relationship with God is okay because I have the right views and beliefs about the end of times. My relationship with God is okay because I have a Christian view on politics and government and economics. Now, what's funny is I was reading through all of those things. There's one or two or maybe several in there that you said, that's just silly. And for every one of those that you said that is just silly, there was somebody else in the room that said that is the most important thing I can think of. John, the author of 1 John, wants us to have a good way of knowing what our relationship with God is like. He wants us to measure the right thing. And this is what we're going to discover in 1 John 3, 11 through 4, 6. And here it is. Are you ready? We know God is in us when we love God one another. We know God is in us when we love one another. You have your finger still in your Bible in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11? Let's begin there. We know God is in us when we love one another. First, to not love is to hate like Cain. Did you hear what I said? That's a little shocking, isn't it? We know God is in us when we love one another, and the first point he's going to make is to not love is to hate like Cain. 
So this is the argument John is about to make. There are two things that we all would agree are bad. To not love is not very good, right? Are we agreed? We all said we should love. So to not love, that's not good. There's another thing that is also bad that we would all agree on. To hate is bad. Are we all agreed? we all on this? And what most of us would do is, you know, both of them are bad, but at least I don't hate them. Right? Okay, maybe I don't love them, and I know that's not fantastic. I know it's not great, but at least I don't hate the guy. Don't look around. And what John is going to say is shocking. To not love is to hate. He's going to take the lesser evil and equate it with the greater evil and tell us we haven't gotten off the hook by, by avoiding hatred. He's going to use a negative example to show us what it means to know that God is in us. Let me read verses 11 through 15 again to remind us what he said. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Excuse me. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John says this at the beginning in verse 11. What's the first thing you have heard when you found Christ? What's one of the first things you have learned when you discovered who Christ is and what he has done for you? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he's saying, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Jesus said it this way over in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35 of John 13 says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. How will everyone know we follow Christ? We love one another. And John is simply saying, this is the first thing you learned. This was like day one. You love Christ, He loves you, you receive salvation through faith alone, you love Him and you love one another. This is not only the first thing we learn, it's of primary importance. And he says Cain was the opposite of that. You remember Cain and Abel, correct? Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. The event is recorded in Genesis chapter 4 if you want to turn there. But Cain and Abel both offered worship to God. Abel offered a sacrifice of an animal and Cain offered an unworthy sacrifice. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. God was displeased with Cain. We're not exactly sure why, but we do know from the other passages in Scripture that Cain was filled with sin and hatred, so he was not seeking relationship with God. And Cain was jealous of Abel's righteousness. And so Cain, out of his hatred and out of his jealousy, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, it says this. I turned to the wrong page, Genesis 4, 8. He says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
So Cain hated Abel. He was jealous of him because of his relationship with God and his righteousness. And so he killed him out of his hatred. And what John does in verse 12 of 1 John 3 is he says, we shouldn't be like Cain. Cain, he equates with the world who hates those who are righteous. Cain is equated with the devil who hates those who are righteous. Look at 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He's making an equation here. He's saying Cain is of the devil. Cain is of the world. The world and the devil and Cain hate those who are righteous. Cain hated Abel because he was righteous. The world hates Christians because in Christ they are made righteous. The devil hates Christians because in spite of the fact that we aren't very good, we're made righteous. He had a claim on our life in our misdeeds, and now because of Christ, even in our brokenness, he has no claim on us. So the question he wants us to ask ourselves, are we of Cain or of the world or of the devil? Or are we of Christ? And it's a very simple understanding. If you're of Cain, you don't love the brothers. If you are of Christ, you love the brothers. He doesn't have a lot of gray area in here. It's black or white for him. It's you love the brothers in the Lord because you are of the Lord, or you do not, and you are of the world, and you are of Cain. James says it this way over in James 4. Verse 1, again, talking to a church of believers, he says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Sounds kind of like 1 John 3 here. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse 4 of James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying our uh, desires in our heart, the uh, envy and the greed, the jealousy and the lust in our hearts creates all kinds of evil passions, and when we seek these things, it creates quarrels and fights within us because we are jealous that everyone else has what we want. And then we pray that God would give us all of the desires of our hearts. God, I'm jealous for that. Would you give it to me? And he says, God doesn't give us what we ask because we're asking for him to satisfy an evil desire in our heart. And he says to be inflamed with anger and hatred at brothers and sisters because of jealousy is simply to be described this way, you adulterous people. To have a lack of love or to have hatred or envy or jealousy towards brothers and sisters in the Lord is to commit adultery against God Himself. Cainness is adultery uh, toward God. Cainness or worldliness is a lack of love and affection for the brothers and sisters we have in the Lord. Some of you guys are arguing with me in your head. I know, how you, I know how it works. Because I would be too. Just fair, it's all I would be too. But if it weren't the Bible, I don't know what to tell you. But you're saying, listen, I cannot hate a guy and also not love him. 
All right, I think maybe I can not love somebody and then not go to hate. Right? Are you trying it? You're saying that in your head. Oh, sure you are. Come on. Nobody wants to agree with me. No, come on. Yeah, we're saying, listen, but what John is making an argument, and it's either you buy it or you don't. This is one of these spots where you get to say, is the Bible true or is my opinion right? He says, you can't not love and call it not hate. To not love the brothers and sisters in the Lord is to be of Cain. That's the argument he's making. He's saying to not love our brothers and sisters in the Lord is no different than the murderous intent of Cain's heart. In fact, he, he makes the statement almost scary in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother, and he's arguing, everyone who does not love his brother is a murderer. What does it mean to not love? To neglect? To avoid? To seek our own isolation away from and over and against those people drive us nuts. Impatience with those whose sanctification is going slower than we want it to. Irritation with difficult people. I know there's no difficult people here. Thankfully, all those folks are camping this weekend. It's just the... I can't love those people because I don't feel loved. I'll love them back as soon as I can finally feel a little bit of love in my own heart. John doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't give us an out. He doesn't give us an eject button. He doesn't say, uh, love the brothers and sisters except for this one situation where you don't have to. What does he say? To not love is to hate like Cain. We know God is in us when we love one another, and to not love one another fractures the confidence we might otherwise have to know He is in us. If you're like most of us, to read this and think about this creates a little bit of tension in us. And so the question we have, well, how am I supposed to love like that? Have you met these people? That's what you're thinking. How am I supposed to love like this? So let's look at what he says in verses 16, 17, and 18. We know God is in us when we love one another, and to have Christ is to love like Christ. To have Christ is to love like Christ. So if the question is, uh, to not love is to hate like Cain, then the question is, how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, to have Christ is to love like Christ. So let me read these verses again. Verses 16, 17, and 18 of 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. To love like Christ is to remember the way in which Christ loved. He laid down his life for sinners. His love for us was at the cost of His life and the cost of His comfort. His love was expressed through loving sacrifice. So we discover something really important about Christ. Are you ready? Critically important. Jesus is lovingly sacrificial. 
Jesus, in His nature, is lovingly sacrificial. When we sinned and needed His work of redemption, He wasn't caught in a pickle and didn't know what to do and thought, well, man, now I have to go and die. He is lovingly sacrificial and seeks uh, to uh, express His love in sacrificial ways, and He loves doing it. He is glorified to offer Himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross. He is glorified to show patience with us as our walk with Him is slow and stuttering. Jesus' very nature is lovingly sacrificial. Over in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable, and Peter comes up to Jesus with a very, very important question, the same question that we were asking after we talked about Cain. Peter says this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? So he had figured out somewhere along the line that Jesus said, you have to love one another and you have to love like I do. And Peter goes, okay, I've, I've only met the disciples so far and I can already see this is going to be tough. So just how far are we going to go with this, Jesus? I mean, I, I just, you know, what's the, like, where's the point where we can say, you're out, bozo? And Jesus told him this parable in an answer. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, and he wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. So he began to settle, and one of his servants was brought before him, and this servant owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. And since he couldn't repay it, his master ordered all of his things to be sold, sell his wife, sell his children, sell all his possessions, so that payment could be made to pay his debt. The servant fell on his knees. He was about to lose everything. And he begged the king, have patience with me. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. I promise. I mean, this is a ridiculous thing to say. The guy didn't have 10 bucks, much less 10,000 talents. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and just forgave the whole debt. Just canceled the whole debt. Didn't set up a payment plan. Didn't set up a low interest. Didn't send him to consumer credit counseling. He said, ah, never mind. Don't worry about it. I got a lot of money. I'm squared away. And so then the servant goes out and finds another fellow servant who owes him a few hundred denarii, which isn't a lot of money. It's like three full punch cards that human being is basically what he owed. He grabbed this guy and started choking him and was going to demand repayment, was going to throw him into prison, debtor's prison, to be tortured. The servant had no idea what the king had given him. And Jesus is saying, I want you to understand, this is the kind of king I am. You show up and I just, I'm, I'm just going to wipe it out. I'm, he said, this is, I'm, I'm not even doing it begrudging, I'm doing it because I'm into it. Jesus said, you show him up with my, your debt, and the one thing I can't wait to do, he's just giddy. He's waiting, please ask me to forgive it. I'll do it. Try me. But this servant misunderstood when he went out to his fellow servant because although he had been forgiven of the debt, he had no understanding of the nature of the forgiver. He had missed the love and affection of the forgiver. And Jesus is trying to remind us here, don't, you're at, if you're asking how much to love or how to forgive, you have simply lost perspective completely. Somehow you have missed the king. Because if you see the king and the way he forgives and the way he grants love and the way he offers himself, that question is never going to come up. 
because there was no way another individual could exceed indebtedness to me what the king has forgiven me of. To have Christ is to have Christ fill our hearts with his loving nature, his sacrificial nature. So here's the bad news. How is it that we understand how much Christ loves us? How is it that we come to understand how much it is that Jesus has forgiven us? It's quite simple. To explore the depths of Christ's love, to explore the depths of what He paid on the cross, requires we explore the depths of our indebtedness. We must know how much we owed Him. And the more we discover we owed Him, the more we're going to be floored by the outrageous nature of His grace. This is why self-righteous people always struggle with forgiveness. Because I have to forgive this Yahoo, I've never done anything like that guy. Anybody ever thought that? Can you believe the nerve of this guy that he would do this? I have never. I mean, clearly, even in those words, I'm betraying that I have completely misunderstood the nature of Christ's grace. I've completely underestimated the degree of my indebtedness. Forgive you for that? Are you kidding me? That's nothing. You would not believe the kinds of things I've been forgiven of. To have Christ is to love like Christ, and to have Christ is to plumb the depths of our indebtedness, and the deeper we go into our indebtedness, we discover His great grace is deeper still. It never ends. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. She comes out and He asks her for a drink of water. She's surprised that a Jewish man is talking to a Samaritan woman. And Jesus says this to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that gives... I'm, I'm sorry, I misread. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. I mean, this is silly. And he talks with her and exposes the depravity of her own heart, the brokenness in her own life, her, her not having a husband and having been with five men who were not her husbands, and the man she currently was with was not her husband. What did he offer her? A pamphlet on healthy relationships? Maybe a book. Maybe a stern look. I'll love you when. I'll, I'll give you some water when you move out. Notice he didn't say that. Does, it, does that bother you at all? What did he offer her? Living water right in the moment where she was. I mean, it's scandalous. It's, it's absolutely, we know it was scandalous because it got him killed. The disciples weren't even that happy about it, and they were sort of on his team for the most part. Jesus is coming to us in the midst of the depths of our depravity, and he's saying, do you want a drink? I will give you something that will satisfy you. All this other stuff, it's not going to help. Let me satisfy you and give you life and give you relationship. 
The adulterer, he does not call an adulterer, he offers her water. The religious who have hatred for their brother, he says, you're an adulterer. This is how he rolls. The one who was caught up in adultery, he offers a refreshing drink. The one who was caught up in their religion and has disdain for their brothers and sisters, he says, you're an adulterer. You have rejected the love of God for the love of something else in your hatred of your brothers and sisters. To have Christ is to love like Christ. To have Christ is to plumb the depths of our depravity that we might drink deeply of His grace and having been filled that it would pour out on those around us. What does that look, love look like? James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need, what good is that? The love of Christ, when it fills us and pours out into the life of others, will in fact be sacrificial, will in fact be costly. Christ's love is tangibly expressed in real-world terms, real-world cost. It is expressed lovingly to others who do not deserve it, have not earned it, will not be able to pay you back, and requires faith on our part because we have to give stuff we need to other people who have needs. On the face machine, or the Facebook, what's it called? Something tragic will happen in somebody's life. I like to make fun of stuff we all do, so, well, here we go. Something bad happens. My thoughts and prayers are with you. And th- I'm a little bit sarcastic and cynical. I don't know if you've picked up on that. I always think, this is what I think. I, yeah, you can keep your thoughts. I don't know. What, I mean, thank you for thinking, I guess, but what's that going to do? But, but although the expression is an expression of a solidarity and affection to say, I'm with you on this, when it comes right down to it, expressing love in the Christian community is not thoughts, prayers, vibes. Christian love expressed in the, in the Christian community is sacrificial love with no payoff to people who don't earn it, to people who haven't deserved it and will never be able to pay you back and will likely take advantage of your generosity in the future. Why is it like that? Because that's how Jesus loves us. Have we ever taken advantage of Christ's love? Just when we're awake. I am filled with the love of Christ that I don't deserve, that I take advantage of, that He pours out on me, and as a result, I am able to pour out love that costs me time, money, energy, reputation on my brothers and sisters. And to do otherwise, John would suggest, you might as well murder them. If I'm to love like Christ, how is that even possible? I'm too weak. So some of us are asking that. I hope you are if you're like me. Uh, Okay, I'm going to love like Christ. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's to the undeserved and the unearned. How in the world am I going to do that? I am, I'm not that guy. I am weak. The answer is to love like Christ is to have a heart like God's. This is the last section here. We know that God is in us when we love one another, and to love Christ is to have a heart like God's. So if you're like anyone else reading this passage, you're filled with a little bit of tension here. You're saying, well, I know my relationship with God is whole when I love others, but the fact is, that's not so easy. I get it, and I'm into that, but at the same time, 
boy, that sounds hard, and I'm not sure if that's happening. Am I, am, is everything okay then? And John totally understands this, and he covers this in verses 19 and following. I'm just going to read a few verses to begin. Verse 19 of 1 John 3. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we will receive. Let me just be honest with you about something here. This particular section of 1 John is terribly tricky to translate. So if you get out four or five different versions of the Bible, you get up four or five different translations. So I'm going to sum up. Are you ready? Because I've already lost half of you in saying that. What he, is he, what he is saying here, in brief, when we understand what it means to love Christ is to love others, our heart is going to be filled with all kinds of tension. And he's saying here, we need to have confidence before God, and we want to reassure our hearts. Look at verse 19. We, uh, we know the truth, and we want to reassure our hearts. A better way of saying that was, we, we, want, we know the truth, and we need to persuade our heart. Our heart here needs some convincing. We want to rest in the love that God has, but we have a heart in us that's a little bit, I don't know, selfish. And he's saying our hearts need convincing here. And a wise person is going to acknowledge that, and they're going to say, I know what love looks like in my life from Christ. I want to express that to others in love. I'm going to need to convince, my heart needs to change. That, that tension there is normal and it's good. That's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit working on our heart saying, there's areas in my life that aren't like God. And I need my heart changed here. That's not evidence of the absence of God. That is evidence of the presence of God. When I, when I, I need to love the brothers and sisters in the Lord the way Christ has loved me, and I don't. My heart needs persuading. My heart needs transforming. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes this process this way. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. And what does this mean? He is saying, listen, we are being changed to be like Christ from one degree of glory to another, and we're not home yet. So I would love to be able to say that I can love the brothers and sisters with a whole heart like Christ did, but I'm still being transformed, and so are you. And the tension that is healthy inside of me is to understand that I don't love the way I ought to, but I want God to change my heart. I want to be persuaded to love the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ the way Christ has loved me. Christ's love is not automatic in our hearts. In fact, The opposite is more automatic. Judgment, disdain, to hold people at arm's length. These things are normal and automatic for our heart condition. We need our hearts changed to be like God. Look at verse 22 of 1 John chapter 3. Whatever we ask from Him, we can come before Him in confidence at the end of the previous verse. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because he keeps, we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. And this is His commandment, that we believe in Jesus and love one another. So if you came to God with a simple request and said, God, I need my heart changed because I do not love those yahoos. 
Do you think he would hear that? Do you think he would respond with the power of the Spirit to begin transforming your heart? Of course. We can have confidence that God hears us as we cry out to him. God, I have read your word. It says to love the brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm doing okay for some, but for others, not so well. My heart's not like yours. God, I need you to change me to make me more like Jesus, and we can trust he will. And then in the midst of that repentance is what we can call that, we then obey through faith and say, I'm not home yet, but I'm going to express that love and trust that he's going to continue to work on my heart. And he's going to use the obedience of our hands and the prayer of our heart and work out in us the image of Christ. We obey by seeking him to change us. He hears our prayers, and as we obey him, he demonstrates his love to us and changes our hearts to be like Christ, that we might love others the way that Christ, in fact, loves us. I'm going to skip verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 for the sake of time. And by skip, we will never return to them. So next week, we'll be beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4. But we have to understand this in regard to verses 1 through 6. He basically says, spirits of God say Jesus came in the flesh. Spirits who are not of God deny Jesus came in the flesh. And here's the thing that we need to understand. In our hearts, the reason this is a little bit hard to grapple with is we want a noble God who seeks noble people. If we have a noble God who seeks noble people, then we have permission to love only what? Noble people. Instead, God is not noble. He is humiliated. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. That's how he's described. On purpose, humiliated as an expression of love, and he's seeking humiliated dead sinners to love. Spoiler alert, that's, that's us. And he wants as a result for us to love humiliated dead sinners. To acknowledge Christ has come in the flesh is to acknowledge the depth of our own sinfulness. When we acknowledge the depth of our own sinfulness, we drink deeply of His grace. And when we do that, we pour out our love unconditionally on the people around us. What would it look like if a church could love like this? One last passage, and then I want to show you a couple of pictures. So one last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You've heard it if you've been to a wedding in the last 50 years. Weddings have essentially ruined this passage. I mean, read it at your wedding, knock yourself out. I don't have a problem for that, with that. It just has nothing to do with that. He's talking about the body of believers working together, with, using their gifts to serve one another and the world around us. And we have all these great gifts and all these great things we can do to serve God. And he basically says... You can do all you want. If you don't love one another, you are wasting your time. If I have prophetic powers, I understand mysteries. If I have all knowledge, if I can move mountains, but do not love, I am what? Nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I have what? Gained nothing. 
Love is patient, kind. It doesn't boast. It's not envious. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 7, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a guy who's been to church. Because he knows what love looks like with a bunch of other dead sinners who have been raised up with Christ. He says, you want to love each other? Let me just square this up for you. You're going to have to bear all things. You're going to have to trust God with all your heart. You're going to have to hope with God with all your heart. And you're going to have to endure everything. This isn't a romanticized, namby-pamby, skip into the worship service. This is a group of people who will die together even though we don't deserve one another. And it's amazing because that's what Jesus is like. The first weekend I was gone, my son and I went up to father-son camp, and one of the cool things about father-son camp was they had a number of activities we got to do. The first one was the crash lab. Got a video here for you. The crash lab. We'll see if it works. It's a nice. Oh, good swing. Nice. Slow-mo. Let's do that in slow-mo. Oh, yeah, we're, ha- we're happy. Oh, yeah, there we go. That's six clay targets. It's a three-wood, real wood. It's a nice swing, shifting the weight to the left foot. Good follow-through. That's a nice swing. Okay, just leave it there, Laura. So the idea of this crash lab, we got the, I mean, we broke clay pigeons in all kinds of ways. We dropped weights on them. We got to throw them. We got the wrist rockets. All the guys in the room are like, okay, this is awesome. So that was fun. I don't know if you could see the grin on my face when I hit those targets. That was, number one, it was a nice swing. <laughs> it always feels good to put a, put a good swing on it. But breaking stuff is fun. Now all of a sudden you realize, how do I put that thing back together? I mean, look at it. There's my sin. And that was the lesson in this crash lab. There's my sin all over the floor. I mean, it was fun. Did you see the grin on my face? That's how sin is. We don't get dragged into sin kicking and screaming, do we? I mean, nobody had to convince us to do it. And there it is. Now what do we do? I mean, there's no putting that back together. All right, so then the next day they gave us this little board. And uh, you can look at the next picture there, Laura. And it had this random drawing on it. You can't see it very well, but it's got this random pattern on it. And it's got, that's the one my son and I were given. It's green, blue, and gold. And what we're told to do is take this drywall compound, uh, plaster kind of stuff, and smear it on this board. We were then going to take all those broken pieces, and we had to paint them the appropriate color. So there's all those broken clay pigeons. And there's our cool little, is that kind of a cool little pattern? And, and, you know, a couple of guys working on a painting project takes longer than you might expect. <laughs> so then we, we got to paint that, and, and that was fun, and then it was set to dry. And then they told us on the last day, they say, hey, listen, on your way, on your way to the final session, go grab your, your design and bring it in. We all want to look at how each of us did our designs. And uh, everybody did it. Some people did it like we did, a fairly compact design. There's, there's our drawing hanging on the display wall. And then as people started coming in, something changed. Let's look at that next picture. We realized we all were a part of something bigger. You can't see ours. I know right where it is. We're a part of the globe there. It's actually a picture of the gospel. It's off to the left. Can't quite see it. There's Garden of Eden. There in the middle, you see the snake's tail. There's an apple. We're still waiting for the piece of the apple to come in. You see that? That's fall. The next part of the gospel is the cross. There's the cross. 
So God created, then we, we sinned, and then we have the cross, and then we have restoration. One day a world renewed. And what was this intended to illustrate was all of us had to take our brokenness, and God takes our brokenness and puts it back together into something it wasn't before. You're not clay pigeons anymore, is it? It's something wholly different. But here's what's critical to understand as brothers and sisters in the Lord. What does my tile mean if it's not with yours? Is meaningless. The only reason our tile has any significance in this portrait is because there's at least eight other broken people all around mine. And this is what's funny is we're supposed to love one another because of the work of redemption in our heart that is changing us into this glory and this, this story that God is telling. And what's the one thing we resent most about each other? The brokenness we bring to the table. This picture doesn't happen if something doesn't break. Because Christ pours out His love on us, we're able to come together with all of our brokenness, all of our hurt, all of our need, and all He's simply asking us to do is engage with one another, not because it's our story, but because we're a part of somebody else's much bigger story, and we can, we can afford to love one another now. Because my life is not bound up in whether or not my tile looks okay. My life is bound up in whether or not God's story is working. And His story always works. What prevents us from loving one another? Cost, time and money. People are expensive. People will not let you love them on your schedule. It's annoying. What prevents us from loving one another? The fact is the people around you are not you, and it's hard to love people who aren't you because they're different. In some ways, they're different, and you like them. In other ways, they're different, and you don't like them. There's some people who are not worthy of your love. There's some people who you have a history with, and that love is going to be hard. Our own sin and the sin of others prevents us from loving. We have our selfishness to contend with, our resentment to contend with. What do we need? If we're going to know that God is in us, we have to love one another. We need to have our hearts persuaded to love one another the way Jesus loves us, on purpose, intentional, costly, even though all of us are broken. Giving up our time, giving up our resources, willing to invest in what's most important, not our own story, but the story God is telling through all of us together.